Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 291. That's a lot. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for um, uh, spending this next little bit of time with me. What I want to do today is begin with the question, what it means to shape culture. What it means to shape culture. And the reason this comes up is because uh, this is a central part of the mission of New St. Andrews College. We want to graduate leaders. We want to train and equip young people to be leaders and to be leaders in the transformation of culture, to be leaders in the shaping of culture. We, we want them to make a dent. We, we want them to go out after their studies and make a difference. Now, if there is no way to tell whether they've made a difference or not, then you really, we really shouldn't be putting that kind of thing on our brochure. <laughs> you know, if we're trying to, rec- if we want to train students who shape culture, then we should have some idea of what that looks like. What, I mean, what does it look like? But as soon as you say um, you're engaging with culture, what do you mean exactly? And if you're dealing with 20 or 100 or hundreds or thousands of graduates over time, if one of your graduates goes goes off two years after graduation, she gets married and she has five kids and she raises them all faithfully with her husband and the kids are all walking with the Lord and they stay in the church, but nobody ever hears of her. She doesn't, she doesn't make it into any history books. Is that shaping culture? That's one thing. Is that shaping culture? And the answer is, of course, yes, it is shaping culture. Um, the next generation matters a great deal. And you can't have a flood without a, a raindrop. But we mean something more than simply that. That's sort of a, a precondition that's necessary. You want, you want that kind of uh, faithful activity, um, graduates who marry and who don't get divorced graduates who bring up children in the Lord, graduates who are faithful church members, and so on. That is sort of uh, what you call a necessary condition for the fulfillment of the mission. Philosophers distinguish a necessary condition from a sufficient condition. A necessary condition is without this thing, you won't have this other thing. Without oxygen, you won't have a fire. But just because you have oxygen doesn't mean that you have a fire. So, if something is a sufficient condition for uh, another circumstance, that's called a sufficient condition. So, graduating leaders who shape culture, uh, that, that means that they must be faithful church attendants, faithful in their families, faithful in their day-to-day Christian walk. That would be a necessary condition for this larger thing that we have in view. We're hunting bigger game, in other words. Now, that does not mean that if we fall short of 90% of our uh, graduates winning the Pulitzer Prize or the Nobel Peace Prize or some other accolade, in fact, (laughs) on some of these prizes, 
we might consider it a failure if they did win the prize, but that, that's a separate question. It's not that we are saying that 100% of our graduates have to win international renown as, as people who have made a difference shaping culture. But if we've been in business for 10, 20, 30 years, and nothing we have done registers anywhere, it doesn't register in art, it doesn't register in literature, it doesn't register in politics, it doesn't register in economics, it doesn't register in law, it, it, everybody just goes to church and sings in the choir, then I would have to say that we, our, our, our goal of saying that we're going to graduate leaders who shape culture is a little bit grandiose. Uh, we really want to have a measurable. We want to be able to say, yeah, we did that. Now, you can't have, uh, and uh, various metaphors come to mind, you can't have great major league baseball pay players without little league. You've got, you've got to have a bunch of people doing the, you know, doing the basics of learning the game out of which regional teams, out of, out of which uh, minor league teams and out of which major league teams and out of which stars in the major leagues emerge. Uh, so we we ought not to disparage the uh, day of small beginnings, and we ought not to disparage the day of widespread small beginnings. You really do want faithful Christians laboring at their post, willing to do what God's word calls them to do without the applause of the world, and even more, without the applause of the Christian world. That is a precondition for shaping culture. However, Jesus did say to disciple the nations. And when you are told to disciple the nations, you really ought to have some idea of what it might start to look like when that starts to happen. And if you have no idea what it looks like, then what are you, what are you up to? What are you doing? What's the point? So, everything we do should make a difference. A lot of what we do is uh, the only place that's going to be revealed, the only metric that matters is the well-done, good and faithful servant at the end of history. So, granted that that's the only metric that matters is for God to receive you into his kingdom with that well done. Yeah, you want that. Of course, we want that. We all want that. But we don't want simply that. We want to be able to see what we're up to. We want to be able to see the progress of the kingdom in history in the world. Always will be God. So, as we continue on with this podcast, episode 291, we are continuing to study hamartiology, considering what the New Testament says about all the different sins that we might commit. So we come now to one of the big ones, the sin of envy. And this really it's one of the seven deadlies. It really is a destroyer. The word is zealous. D-Z-E-L-O-S. Zealous. And the sinful element is envying. All right. So the word is zealous, and the sinful element in this is the envying. Now, referring to the sin, it's usually translated as envying, but there are a few other renderings like indignation or emulation. Interestingly, there are places where the same word, the very same word, is used to describe a virtue. Now, there are some words that we, as in our study, we've talked about some words that are virtuous or, or, or not, 
based on the direct object, based on the context. But this is a word where the word itself can refer to a virtue or a vice. And, and you'll see how. When this occurs, the meaning is zeal, as in John 2.17 or in Colossians 4.13. So it also is used of a mistaken and sinful zeal, as in Romans 10.2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And then the same thing is seen in Philippians 3.6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So there is the mistaken zeal, which is, but it's a zeal toward God, which is described as sinful. And then there is zeal, genuine zeal. Uh, John 2.17 is when the Lord cleansed the temple and, and the zeal for his father's house ate him up. That's not a sin, right? When translated as indignation, the word can refer to something righteous or unrighteous. Then the high priest rose up and all they that were with him, which is the sect of Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. That's Acts 5.17. So all the bad guys in the Sanhedrin rose up and they were filled with indignation. But then it also refers to the judgment of a holy God. Uh, we see that in Hebrews 10.27 but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Okay? So, a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, there it is, which shall devour the adversaries. So, that is righteous. But most of the time, it's just the plain old sin of envy. Here's a passage from Romans 13, 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. There it is. And then we have another place in 1 Corinthians 3, 3. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying, there's our word, and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? And here's another one, 2 Corinthians twelve twenty. For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as you would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, and tumults. Okay, James teaches us the same thing, same lesson. James 3.14 and James 3.16. But if ye have bitter envying, there you go, and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. And just two verses down, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. So this is bad work all around. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. There you go. They saw how successful the apostles were. They were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. They were driven by envy. That's Acts 13, 45. And then, at the tail end of this little lesson, we have a list of sins found in Galatians 5.20. And you remember what I've said before. I think that sins are like grapes. They come in bunches. And we're right in the middle of this list. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, there's our word, and instead of envyings, uh, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. Those who live like this, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. God don't never change. He's God. All right, so continuing on with our podcast. This being the same podcast of episode 291, we come to our book review. And the book this time around is a short little book uh, called Why I Left Full Preterism. 
And this is by Samuel Frost. Why I Left Full Preterism by Samuel Frost. Now, Samuel Frost was once a leader in the full preterist movement. And before going on with the review, I'll briefly summarize what uh, preterism is. We're talking about the fulfillment of prophecy, and this has to do with eschatology, your view of the end of the world. Let me take the book of Revelation as a um, as just a block of wood for me to whittle on so you can see the different positions. So the book of Revelation is popularly thought to be a vision of the end of the world, at least in North America. That's the popular evangelical view. And because the book of Revelation is seen as being as coming to fulfillment in our future, this position is called the futurist position. All right? Futurist position. There is another take called the idealist position, which treats the book of Revelation as a giant parable in the sky. You can't defeat the good. Uh, evil will be thrown down. And it's, it doesn't have any actual historical fulfillment. That's an idealist view. Then there's the historicist view, which is that the book of Revelation uh, sort of unrolls like a carpet, uh, and it unrolls all the way down through church history. So you, you may have run across historicist elements uh, when people say that the seven churches of Asia, Ephesus and Laodicea and Thyatira and Philadelphia, represent different church ages. That is a historicist view. So, so the idea is it starts being fulfilled in the first century, and it's continuously fulfilled down through history. So if someone said, my view of Revelation is that this verse is talking about Napoleon Bonaparte, that would be a historicist view. Okay. Then the last view is what's called preterist, and this comes from the Latin word, uh, a Latin word referring to past. So a preterist is someone who believes that the book of Revelation was to be fulfilled in the future of John, who gave the vision, who was given the vision, and who passed it on to us. So the book of Revelation was to be fulfilled in his future, but that it was fulfilled in the first century after John gave it. And consequently, it's in our past, 2,000 years in our past. So that's the preterist position. The, and then now here's the next division. The partial preterist view, which is the view I hold, uh, is that many of the passages that people commonly assume are talking about the end of the world are actually passages that are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So I was using the book of Revelation as a model, but this would, these categories would also apply to any other prophecy, um, Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 17 and so on. So I believe that many of the prophecies of the end of Jerusalem are mistaken by Christians as talking about the end of the world. Okay, that's partial preterism, because partial preterists say that there are some prophecies that are as of yet unfulfilled. And those prophecies have to do with the general resurrection of the dead uh, at the end of history. Now, the full preterists are the ones who say, basically, if one's good, two's better. And they say absolutely every prophecy that is taken usually to refer to the end of the world is actually talking about the end of Jerusalem. 
in 70 AD, meaning that there are no prophecies about the future at all. And that means that there's no, we have no definite idea of whether or not history is ever going to end, whether or not death is ever going to be conquered, whether or not sin ever goes away. Uh, so the idea is that human history simply goes on and on and on with no resurrection at the end of it. And the preterists say that when you die, you, your body goes in the ground and you get a new body in heaven. But there is no resurrection. Is, uh, there is no end of history and no resurrection from the dead at the end of history. That's full preterism. And this little book, Why I Left Full Preterism uh, by Sam Frost, is a really good introduction to the, um, the whole discussion because Sam Frost shows how this is not simply an isolated doctrine. This is not, not an argument about the timing of some future event. It has to do with the nature of the incarnation, the nature of human history, the, um, the nature of biblical interpretation, and so on. So uh, Sam Frost was a, as I mentioned before, was a leader in the um, in the full preterist movement, and he writes clearly and he writes charitably, but um, pretty he's pretty direct on how serious an error uh, the full preterist error is. So if you've been scratching your head over these things, and you've seen various online debates, you might wonder, what well, what do I do? Well, I think the best thing you could do is order a copy of this uh, small book. It'll be uh, a big help to you.